following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. John Plessick and I just returned last night from a week in Germany where we taught uh, a bunch of pastors from not just Germany, but also Croatia and um, uh, France and a few other places. And we had an incredible time talking about the practice of pastoral ministry. And amazing that we, they worked us from 7 to Ottery, 4.30, and then we do a Q&A afterwards, and they were hungry. And we had a wonderful time just walking through what the Bible has to say about ministry on a very practical level. Uh, that's what the design of the class was. So there's a lot of interaction as we're going to the airport, Christian Andresen, who is now overseeing the uh, Master's Academy International for all of Europe, uh, basically dropped us off. And as he dropped us off, he dropped a bomb. He goes, you know, I want to bring my guys. I, I want to bring the guys that you just met. I want them to come to FBC. And uh, I want them to come here in March. And I want 10 guys and then maybe 20. And then we're going to open it up to all of Europe. So all the key pastors all around these countries, uh, they may come be with us, anywhere from 20 to 40 guys. We'll ask you to put them up in your homes. You'll have an opportunity to influence what God is doing in Europe uh, in March. And then he said, hey, can you, uh, would you take one of the guys and really invest into him? He's a, a future guy, and so he may be coming next fall and staying with us for a year. And I, the Lord just brought all that about. We didn't expect it. We didn't ask for it. Uh, but here you go. Here's your opportunity. So pray like crazy, if you would and uh, get ready to influence France. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just make sure they teach you how to make pastry and you teach them about the church, okay? That'd be good because they've got it wired, let me tell you. Um, interesting enough, we talked about ministry and ministry often is embarrassing, right? Things happen in ministry and you're just not ready for it. I remember one time I walked out on the platform ready to open God's word and one of the guys ran up to me and he goes, oh, here you are, going to be really funny again. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I had five feet of toilet paper stuck to the bottom of my shoe. And I went, no, yeah, funny. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Yeah, um, I didn't. But um, anyway, Interesting stuff. I've had uh, basically microphones fall off of pulpits, then hit flowers, then knock the flowers onto the floor in front of 2,000 people, uh, and they're all laughing, not singing. And um, amazing things have happened in ministry that were very embarrassing. And the really the reason I bring this up is that sometimes we think, oh, that's so humbling. It's humbling when things like that happen, but that's really not what happened. I was embarrassed, but it had nothing to do with actually biblical humility. And part of our problem in the English language is that we view humility like it's embarrassment when actually humility is definitive actions that are expressed within the body of Christ. Definitive actions. And I want you to see that because it's essential for you. You say, Chris, why is it essential? Because God expects us when we are persecuted, when we have hostility expressed against us as a church, as God's people, that the solution that he offers us is humility. He says, I want you to practice humility in the midst of a persecuted environment because that's what's going to hold you together when the enemy wants to tear us apart. Are you tracking it? And you say, Chris, where do we learn that? I'm so glad you asked. First Peter chapter 5. We're going to take a look at First Peter as an overview and then we'll take a look at First Peter chapter 5 and take a look at this issue of humility. Humility is not speaking in a quiet voice 
looking at the ground and kicking the dirt. It's not nothing to do with that, and it's not embarrassment. So what we need to learn today is exactly how is humility expressed. So to understand that, we're going to learn from Peter. Now, you know Peter. We all love Peter, right? The apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Best buddy of mine. I mean, he, he's got it down. Amazingly, he's the one who, you know, would say to the Lord, and I'm going to bear witness of you, Christ, and at the very next moment, he's arguing with Jesus. You know, he says, uh, no, 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 I'm not going to let you wash my feet, and then at the next moment, yeah, bathe me, you know, give me a complete bath, or I'm going to stand, I'm going to die for you, Jesus, and then the next moment, he's denying him three times. This is Peter, Peter who learned so much, Peter who was an amazing apostle, and he writes this letter about A.D. 64, 65 in the first century, and these believers are being persecuted after Nero burned Rome and blamed Christians. And so he's writing to encourage them about how to triumph in the midst of their troubles, in the midst of persecution, how to survive. He calls it, by the main verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, to stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm in God's grace. How are you going to do that when the world is against us? Now, regardless of how you view COVID and what the governments of the world did towards churches... There has been a feel of persecution or coming persecution. Can I hear a, an amen to that? There's been a feel of that. And friends, I don't want to be the doomsayer. And please don't ask me what it's going to be, but they're not done. They're not done. This world is against God. This world is opposed to God. And therefore, there's going to be pushback. And my burden today is just to basically kind of lay the foundation for you as to what should we do as a church when we get hit again? What are the actions that Peter teaches the church to do in reaction to persecution or internal strife? Are you with me? And that's what he's teaching us in 1 Peter, particularly in 1 Peter chapter 5. So he does this by laying a foundation of three things. He talks about salvation, he talks about suffering, and he talks about service. Those are the three main points that he's making as he working his way to 1 Peter chapter 5, when he starts with salvation, he's basically saying this, God caused your salvation. Look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. He actually uses that phrase. He goes, according to his great mercy, who has caused us to be born again. You say, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, theologically, he's talking about regeneration that precedes faith, but a salvation that is necessarily initiated by a merciful God. You say, Chris, why? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. When you're persecuted, when your life is on the line, when you've got to stand for Christ, you need to know that salvation was not up to you, it was up to God. You need to know that no matter what happens, and, and again, not in our situation yet, but these Christians are being tortured, they're being, all kinds of things are happening to them, which we'll talk about in a minute. But understand, in that situation, you need to know, I can't lose my salvation because salvation was initiated by a hand that cannot be changed. And that's what he says. So he wants to make sure that we're celebrating the fact that God is the one who saved you. The second thing he talks about is the idea of suffering. And suffering is a weird topic for Christians in our culture. But understand, I put a quote there for you. Suffering is not an ordeal to escape, but an opportunity to what? It is not an ordeal to escape, but an opportunity to exploit. In other words, you know it and I know it. The lost pay attention. Do they not? 
when we rejoice in our suffering. They look at us going, what is going on? You know, when Paul and Titus are singing in a prison, they're in stocks, they're singing hymns, and they're going, whoa, what's going on here? And the Philippian jailer gets saved. It's an amazing, amazing influence. So Peter already ta taught us that the unsaved notice when you submit, when you can, to an unjust government, harsh masters, when you submit to disobedient husbands. Peter says, even in this section, take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the who? Gentiles. He's talking about the unsaved, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's his way of saying they would get saved. They would get saved. So he suffered for you, the just for the unjust. So be ready to suffer him. Be ready to suffer for him. Buy up the opportunity that suffering offers to make a powerful impact for Jesus Christ. So in a persecuted church, that's what he says to us. Make sure, and I, I know some of you live this way already. You're going through a tough time, you're going through a health issue, and you're saying to the Lord, Lord, help me to glorify you through this trial, right? So he just expands it one more level and says, now, not just a trial, but actually persecution from others, help me to glorify you through that event. That's what he's talking about. The third section Peter talks about in chapters 4 and 5 is serving. Now, the natural response to persecution is to, ready, write it down, run and hide. Right? When you're persecuted, you want to avoid that, as if at all possible. But Peter says, Zoom calls are not going to cut it. He says, I want Christians to invest into each other. So look at chapter 4, if you would, really briefly, starting at verse 7 of 1 Peter, and follow along. He talks about extreme service, not just regular service, but extreme. You say, what do you mean by extreme? He says, don't merely show up to church, but verse 7, pour on the zeal because Jesus is coming in any moment. And then in verse 8, he says, don't merely love each other, but love others excessively. Begin the practice of overlooking the weaknesses, the bents, the unintentional sins of others, since love covers a what? Multitude of sins. And don't merely greet believers that you don't know at greeting time, but verse 9, offer them your place to stay in genuine hospitality. If you can't do that, at least take them out to Taco Bell. You know what I'm saying? And then he says in verses 10 and 11, passionately, Put Christ on display through your giftedness so that all might be drawn to come to Christ, become like Christ as the Lord has seen in greater ways through us corporately than he could ever be seen by us individually. We as a church can put Christ on display in a greater way than we can individually. And he says spiritual gifts are the way to do that. And the people sitting next to you are manifestations of a ways that they can put Christ on display that you and I will never be able to do. And when we're all doing that, Guess who gets the glory? Jesus Christ. His body demonstrating his character. So as the enemy seeks to tear this church apart, what will be the glue that will hold us together? We're now at chapter 5. So we worked our way there, and after preparing these churches that are now existing in modern-day Turkey, with the entire letter on salvation, the opportunity of suffering, and service, he now focuses on one desperately needed quality. Peter wants the church families to be saturated with it. So he addresses the three main groups that make up the church. So when you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it's not one group of people that he's talking to. 
he's actually talking to three different groups of people. Who are they? Number one, the elders. Number two, in verses one through five, the future leaders of the church. And for all of you who are going, wait, this doesn't relate to me, it now does because every member in the church family is to embrace one needed quality. For time's sake, I'm going to focus on just one verse. Verse 5 of chapter 5, but I'm going to summarize a little bit of verses 1 through 4 and read the whole passage so you can get the heart of what Peter is actually trying to say here. What is he saying? Well, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the who? Elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that has been revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears he will you will receive the unfading crown of glory verse 5 you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. Now, 40 plus years ago, I assumed that this text was only talking about elders. It's not. When you look carefully, he's talking to the entire church. He's talking about the entire church in light of a persecuted environment, and he's highlighting three groups making up the entire church in these verses. Verse 2, the elders. Verse 5, the first part, young men. Verse 5, the second part, the entire church much must practice again the one quality and that one quality is answer humility humility every group has one practice of humility you say what is that Chris I'm so glad you asked that as well it's defined by the one command that is given to each of the groups that he highlights you say what are those commands they're obvious from the text elders are to what shepherd they're all by the way letter s young men are to what submit and all of you are to exercise humility by exercising service to one another shepherding submitting and serving and these churches in Asia Minor were currently experiencing various levels of Nero's persecution now if you're living in Rome it was really intense and the closer you were to Rome the more intense it was so Christians in Rome at this time, for the first time ever, were being thrown into the arena and torn to shreds by lions and other wild beasts. They were being lit on fire in Nero's garden and other horrific ways. They were being persecuted. And as you went out from Rome, it was still going on, but less intense. But it was definitely happening. And so Peter is writing to these believers who are experiencing great suffering He's saying, stand firm in God's grace. How? Remember your salvation. Buy up the opportunity of suffering. Make sure that you're aggressive and excessive in your service. And then he says, I want you to exercise that premier quality. And that premier quality we're looking at today is the answer? Humility. You say, really? Yeah. Notice, and I want you to see this so you're convinced of it. Not that you're taking my word for it, but you see it right out of the text. What does the text say? It begins, verse 1, chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders. Stop there. Peter's an apostle. And instead of asserting his rod of iron apostolic authority, 
he joins them as a fellow shepherd, and he takes his place as a part of the elder team, and in doing so, he demonstrates humility. He's demonstrating it. He begins this paragraph modeling an example of humility. Now check out how Peter ends this paragraph. Take a look at verse 5. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility, a command there, toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, answer, look at verse 6, humble yourselves, another command, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. He ends the paragraph with a command to be humble. Now, when a biblical writer, you're doing your own Bible study now, begins a paragraph with an example of humility, and he ends the paragraph with an exhortation and command of humility, what's he talking about between the example and the exhortation? Answer? Humility. You got it. You guys are biblical scholars. There you go. That's exactly what he's saying. In fact, in this particular context of this entire letter, he's saying not merely be humble and exercise humility, but emphasizing the crucial need of humility when our church is attacked. Say, Chris, what's your motive here? I want you ready for the next wave. Say, Chris, what's it going to be? I have no idea. I just know it's going to happen. And therefore, you need to be ready. Not fearful. We don't have to fear our God, but we need to be ready. Amen? And he's saying to be ready, I want you to be ready when it happens to exercise humility. Exercise it. Now, understand, what is God's secret for a church to survive dissessing trials or COVID confusion? And that would be to passionately pursue humility. Peter answers this question, what kind of sound doctrine, expositional church avoids splits, stops division, is not harsh, is not political? It is churches that are drowning in humility. So how do churches then practice it? How do Christians practice humility? Well, he gives you three S's. Here they are, one more time. Elders, shepherd God's people God's way. Young men, submit to your leaders. And everyone in the church, clothe yourselves with humility in service. And you'll see that when we get there. That is the author's intended message of this passage. Be ready for what's coming by practicing these things. That is Peter's intended meaning and the goal of your life, your ministry, your church. Shepherd, submit, and serve. So what is humility? Again, one more time. Humility is not, I'm a worm and everybody's better than me. That's not humility. Humility is not looking sheepishly at the ground and humility is definitely not being embarrassed. We got plenty of embarrassing things. We could share stories and I'm sure you could, you know, I'm not sure you could tackle my embarrassing moments. I'm not sure. Uh, exceed them. But humility is, take a look at the definition there in your outline, humility is living dependently upon the Holy Spirit with a determination to, circle this word, phrase, die to self. Die to self, glorify God in all you say and do in order to sacrificially serve others just like who? Just like Christ. Christ shows us humility in Philippians 2, who existed in the form of God. He emptied himself taking on the form of a slave. That should shock you. The creator of the universe, God himself took on the role of a slave. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. He died to self. 
Stuart Scott has a wonderful pamphlet that is called From Pride to Humility, and he calls pride an epidemic, and he calls humility an endangered virtue. And Peter here calls the persecuted churches to manifest the actions that come from humility. You see, what would be some actions that come from humility? Well, what you have, and he listed some for us, is like trusting God's character, giving up your rights, praying about everything. These are exercises of humility. Being thankful, gentle, patient. Having an accurate view of your gifts and abilities. Listening well. Submitting to God and others. Preferring others. Embracing reproof. Having a teachable heart, seeking to build up others, admitting when you're wrong, just to name a few. The humble will lose their will in order to accomplish God's word. You know what the humble do? They they obey God's word regardless of, you know, trying to make some sort of witness or whatever. They're just going, we're just going to do what the Lord wants us to do. They lose themselves in the will of God. They want to serve him. They want to have basically living for less for themselves and more for Christ. They want to be a vessel for Christ to serve through. They want Christ seen increasingly and them to be decreasing. And only God can glorify God, so ultimately it's by God's Spirit that a a believer can actually grow in humility. And along with loving humility, there's also a growing hatred of pride. Pride. What is the first sin in the universe? Answer? What was the favorite sin of the devil? Answer? What is the worst sin in your life? Answer? That's right. Pride, write this down, is the attitude of the master, not the heart of a servant. It's the attitude of the master instead of the heart of the slave. Every believer in this room, every single one, elder and brand new convert, battles with pride. We do. Whether you're aware of it or not, Stuart Scott again describes a few manifestations of pride This could be you, complaining against God, lack of gratitude, seeing yourself better than others, perfectionism, seeking to control, being devastated by criticism, being unteachable, being degrading of others, lack of service, lack of compassion, being defensive, not admitting when you're wrong, lack of prayer, disrespect for authority, minimizing your own sin, impatience, and using others. All of it, manifestations of pride. Theologians will actually tell us that not that pride is the greatest of all sins, they'll tell us it is the core of every sin. It is central to every sin, and the only cure for pride is humility. Humility, which is what Peter commands you to cultivate individually and for our church to embrace corporately, especially when we're attacked. Be humble like Moses. That's Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, and then it says, more than any man who was ever on the face of the earth. Wow. And then be humble like Christ, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ was humble in heart. Now, no one here, not one of you, even in the back row up there, none of you are going to write a book, Humility and How I Attained It, okay? <laughs> not going to do it, right? It's a difficult quality. In fact, as soon as you think you've gained humility, you've probably lost it, Right? Plus, the world hates humility. They hate it. Your non-Christian friends view humility as a weakness. In business, they tell you to be self-assured. In school, you've got to have a good self-image and feel good about yourself. I know of a pastor who went to Starbucks and was asked, hey, how are you doing today? He goes, better than I deserve. The entire shop stopped. 
workers and customers stop to build him up in his poor self-esteem. <laughs> the world can't stand humility. And to develop humility, you've got to be willing to be misunderstood and you've got to swim against the strong cultural current of pride. Where do you start? Well, you start in this passage. How should churches respond, especially when society becomes hostile? We don't attack back. We become growingly humble. God expects the church to embrace humility, seen by elders shepherding, young men submitting, and everyone sacrificially serving. So allow me to summarize and then concentrate on verse 5, how to minister to the future leaders of our church, and that includes the children in your own home, and along with how to survive the coming attacks against our church. Well, first of all, and I'm going to summarize elders pretty quickly here. Hang on. Elders will shepherd. Elders will shepherd. That's now found in your outline. Elders lead, they care, they teach, they exercise oversight. But the main New Testament verb of an elder is what? Anybody? Shepherd. That's the number one verb. The number one attribute or ongoing verb of an elder is to shepherd, painting the familiar picture of first century keeping of sheep. Elders are not merely qualified men, like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They also have a crucial function, and that is shepherding, feeding the flock, protecting the flock, warning, watching, examining, knowing their bents. Again, the most repeated, repeated verb in the New Testament for elder is shepherd, and shepherding has been called knowing the hearts of your sheep and directing them towards Christ through his word, towards Christ. And to shepherd well, elders need to cultivate three directives. You see that there in the text in 1 Peter 5? Humble shepherds, verse 2, will not be forced but willing. Verse 2, not resentful but eager. Verse 3, not controlling but meek. Elders are not sheriffs, they're shepherds. Elders don't control the church. Now, they are to rule, that is a verb that's given to elders, but they're not in charge. Get that straight. Elders are not in charge. They serve the one who is in charge. Elders seek to determine the one will of Christ who is the head of his church. Man, that would change the nature of the church in the U.S. in a heartbeat if that one thing were true. All they want is what Christ wants for the church. And personal agendas went out the window. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he directs elders to shepherd the assembly like a father shepherds his own family. Listen, for them, for elders, true elders, it's not about position. It's not about payment. Are you ready? It's about people. People. People coming to Christ. People becoming like Christ. Shepherding the flock of God. And elders are to humbly under-shepherd the people the great shepherd died for by following his word. And the driving motivation is not <laughs> for them to have the praise of men, but to hear the praise of the chief shepherd who would say in this context, well done, good and faithful servant, here's your crown. And that's verse 4. Spiritual leaders are motivated by eternal reward. Now, we went through that very quickly so I could finally get to the main verse that we're actually expositing today, and that would be verse 5, and that leads us to younger men submit. Younger men submit. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Peter uses likewise marking a change, and though there's a little bit of debate as to who he's talking to here, it's very clear and good translators agree that it's the younger in the congregation and in that culture that would in fact be men. Why would Peter say to young men, submit to elders? 
And Jay Adams, the you know, predominant counselor of our, of, our, of our age, said this. He offers this answer, quote, It is often hard for them to do so, to submit. The hot blood of youth may run so strongly that young members of the congregation find it hard to move as slowly and as deliberately as their elders. They want changes when? Now, end quote. It is possible for elderships to be too conservative in their decision-making, too conservative and slow, but often younger men fail to recognize that careful judgment is often required in leading the church, and that's why the young men here are to learn from and honor their elders. It's also true that elders should listen to the entire family and listen to the voice of youth who at times will bring updated insight into church direction as well as to help me to install that new app on my iPhone. Um, spiritual young men are wonderfully described in 1 John chapter 2. They fight for the truth. They're ready for battle. They're firm on their convictions. You know any guys like that? We got a ton of them here. I mean, you, get, you, you, know, you meet them and their sword's drawn. They're ready to hack heads. You know what I mean? Doctrinally, they're awesome. But also young men are often hard-headed, opinionated, and full of juice. Have you noticed that too? So P- <laughs> the young guys go, amen. <laughs> Peter Peter commands them to practice humility by following their spiritual leaders. And as they do so, for the church to remain unified during persecution and trial. That word likewise, again, means in the same way. So what he's saying is, as elders show humility by shepherding, in the same way, young men likewise show humility by submitting. So Peter says, Humility is shown when young men obey what their elders direct. Now, I know most of you are familiar what it means to have a military checkpoint, right? We're familiar with what's happened around the world, and we understand that a military checkpoint is you're keeping insurgents from coming in, you're keeping bombs from coming in, and that's what you do. And so that's really the picture of what you have here, because that word submit, young men submit, is a military term. And he's saying, obey the orders of your elders and, and follow them and submit to them it's because there's danger, right, in the church. There's danger, and I want you to make sure you're submitting in that particular context, and that's what he's saying here. Why? Not because your elders are always right, but because it's the only way to live humbly and be like Christ. Now, this is not what the world wants. You might want to write this down. Submission is criticized quality by the fallen. Submission is a criticized quality by the fallen, but submission is a Christ-like quality for the faithful. It is a criticized quality for the fallen. It is a Christ-like quality for the faithful. Submission is a quality that you find in the Godhead. It's not a dirty word, friends. It is a reflection of our God. Totally three persons, one God, equal and one, but after the incarnation, God the Son actually submitted to God the Father. And he glorified the Father in his submission to the Father. He glorified the Father in his submission. And Peter has already written to us in chapter 2, though we're not familiar with that at this particular point, but you can see it there. In chapter 2, he tells the young men to submit just like he taught them in 1 Peter 2, like a child submits to a parent, a citizen to a police officer, a wife to a husband, and a slave to a master. You young men, I want you to submit in the same way that I've already taught you in chapter 2. Express humility by ranking yourselves under and submit to your elders. Now, how do you know when submission is really happening in the church? It's more than obedience. Submission 
is actually an attitude and a willingness and a hunger to do what the Lord wants you to do. I mean, in most churches, it's true, isn't it? People love submission until they're asked to do something they don't want to do or they're denied something they want and then submission is dropped and what I want becomes supreme, right? By the way, ladies, for you, the kind of guy you're looking for is the guy who can submit, okay? Thank you very much. All right, you're done now. All right, so God says something totally different. He says, unless they're commanding you to disobey God's word or to not obey the word of God, Peter says to the younger men in the church, be subject to your elders. Just as Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 16, he says, you also be in subject to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors. The humble will submit, and only those in Christ can submit, and only those daily dependent upon the Spirit of God can submit with a humble heart. Now, if you love your local church, if you love the church, you will ask this question. And by the way, this really relates to fathers. It relates to authority on multiple levels. How is it that you can make it easier for young men to submit? What makes it easier for young men to submit? Now, obviously, a godly husband can make submission a joy for a wife. Godly parents can make obedience easy for children. And elders can make submission better for young men. So after establishing, again, a strong authorial intent pulpit and sound theology, what are the steps that leaders should take to make that happen? Well, in his letter, he's already told us. In the letter of 1 Peter, he's already said, this is what makes it easier for young men to submit. He actually spells it out for us. And in his letter, he's teaching the essentials of not only survival, but thriving in harsh times. These are also the very actions leaders can take to make following their leadership a blessing instead of a burden. You say, wait a minute, you're not paying attention. Get it. You've been under leaders where it's a burden to follow their leadership, and you've been under leaders where it's a blessing to follow their leadership. That's an important question to ask, is it not? So what is it? In this letter, he's already exposed those steps. So I would like to go back over 1 Peter very quickly and draw out some of the more obvious ones. And the, really, the supposition behind verse 5, when it says, young men submit to your elders, is the supposition that is assumed in the text is that the leaders are actually committed to training up the next generation. That they're actually committed to going, they're going to be the next leaders. So yeah, they're submitting to us, but we know they're going to take over. Are you with me? So how do leaders focus on the next generation that makes their submission easier? Well, let's work backwards. Let me highlight a few things. They're there in your notes, uh, some obvious steps that leaders can pursue. Number one, when elders love people like shepherds, from chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the immediate context. Not making policy like a politician. El elders don't make policy, they deal with people. They deal with people. Uh, not executing orders like a board of directors and a CEO, and not trying to control Christians like a sheriff, but as 1 Timothy 5, excuse me, 3 verse 5 expects, taking the posture of a father in the family. How can you lead the church if you can't lead your own home? That's what 1 Timothy 3, 5 asks. And it's treating the church like your own home. Loving the older saints and the young men and the children. Sometimes in the church there are VIPs. Some people look at things that way. I don't. 
And some people look at the church there. In the church, there's sometimes occasionally VDPs. You know what VDP is? Very draining person. Okay, so there's a... Doesn't matter. You love the VIPs. You love the VDPs the same. That's what you do because you love people. And elders who shepherd their local church like it was their family make it easier for young men to submit. Simply stated. Just same thing with dads. Same thing with authority and all those fronts. Number two in your outline. Elders make submission easier for young men. First Peter 4 when they encourage every person in their church to serve the way that God spiritually gifted them. Gifted them. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. We're going backwards now through Peter. Peter's not calling for sign gifts here. He's calling for serving and speaking gifts, our spirit-given windows for a believer to put Christ on display. And you've heard me say this a hundred times, and I'll keep saying it. The wonderful thing about the church family is that every single one of you who are born again can put Christ on display in a way that I and everyone else in this room never will. You alone can do that. And when a church is filled with people who are committed to putting Christ on display in their spiritual giftedness, all you see is Jesus Christ, and he gets all the glory. That's the wonder of the body of Christ. That's what we delight in. And understand, exercising spiritual gifts and service is partially fulfilling why you're here on the planet. It is the good works that God's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In fact, it's amazingly affirming to each Christian in their created purpose. Theologically, spiritual gifts are God-given abilities for service in the body. God-given abilities for service in the body. And in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, if you look there, Peter taught these churches that functioning in their giftedness was essential to the health of their church. And yet, you know what? In the U.S. and even around the world, Churches today have lost the importance of expecting their members to serve each other with the Holy Spirit sovereignly given its salvation abilities. It's lost today. And churches are, are, are filled, those that are filled with gifted servants learn to appreciate each other by how each individual believer in their midst can put Christ on display in a way they can't themselves. And every believer is unique. How do they learn what their unique combination of gifts are? We've said this multiple times. Believers learn how they're gifted to serve by serving. You start serving and you start listening. You listen to the body, right? And the body will tell you, as simply stated, you go visit your friend in the hospital. If you leave and they want to die, you don't have the gift of mercy. (laughs) If you say, I'm a leader, all you have to do in the spiritual realm, look behind you. If no one's following you, you're not a leader. If you're a teacher, you I'm a teacher, and you open up God's Word, and everybody's tearing their clothes, wanting to fall asleep, or leave that room, you are not a teacher. Right? There will be fruit that remains, and people will be telling you, listen, if they're filled with the Spirit, and they know God, they will be saying to you, you need to do more of that. And in your own heart, you'll be going, Oh my goodness, I love doing that. That can't be my spiritual gift. And I would say just the opposite. It must be. Because there's great joy. You get tired, but there's great joy. Listen, we're intended and designed to do that. And men, well, if you appreciate young men in your midst who are exercising their giftedness and letting them shine in the way that God wants them to shine, they're much more willing to submit in that kind of setting. You follow what I'm saying? That's what he's talking about here. Listen, you know this is true. When every organ in your body functions at peak capacity, your body will resist attack, right? 
when every Christian functions in their giftedness, the church body will withstand attack. And that's why he says it here in a persecuted environment. That's exactly why he says it. Because they're stronger by all of us serving in the way that God designed. The very first article of my sending church, Grace Community Church, that was written about that church was the church of 900 ministers. Say why? Because there were 900 people there, they all served in their giftedness, and it blew everybody away. That's what God designed. Everyone serving the way they're gifted. And elders stabilize the church and make submission easier when they encourage each member to do what God has gifted them to do. And number three, when leaders love fervently. When they love fervently. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, you know this, when pastors teach the congregation, and this is tough to do, that until heaven we will sin every day. Don't say amen, but it's true. We hate sin. Can I hear an amen to that? We love holiness. Can I hear an amen to that? But you're not going to be completely holy until you're in heaven. And therefore, according to Numbers 15, there's a difference between defiant sin and unintentional sin. And defiant sin is I know what God says and I'm going to do it anyway. Unintentional sin is I trip over it all the time, whether thought or heart or life or pride or self or whatever. And it, when it comes to unintentional sin, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. We get over it. We don't edgy and beat each other up over that kind of stuff. And healthy churches are able to strive towards holiness while overlooking weaknesses and bents and unintentional sins. And I try to be as, as just horrible as possible so you would then learn to exercise that towards me. I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. Understand, healthy churches strive to do that. In fact, why do they do that? Because in John 1.14, it says of Jesus Christ, it describes our Lord, the creator of the universe, your Savior. He says he was full of grace and truth and that's what we want to be right when you see jesus cleaning out the temple you go man man of truth when you see him turning water into wine right there in the context there boy a lord of grace he didn't have to do that but he did it right and and with everything we do we want to be men and women of truth but to say things in the most gracious way that we possibly can and understand just like parents parents are you, when, you're, when your one-year-old falls over when they're trying to learn to walk, what do you do? What's wrong with you? Is that what you do? Or do you go, no, 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 let's try it again. Let's keep going. And that same heart, that same attitude of love covering a multitude of sins, it's like, let's encourage you. I'm not talking about defiant sin. I'm not talking about moral failure. I'm talking about a willingness to encourage people to continue to walk in obedience, even though they trip up. Are you with me on this? It's a patience towards one another. Again, elders will find young men submit easier, and you will find submission easier in every context when you can mature in a truth and grace-saturated environment. Submission is also easier for young men and churches grow strong. When number four, leaders live out marriages and function by God's design. They lead and live out marriages and function by God's design. Now I'm working my way back through 1 Peter. Now I'm in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And Peter powerfully describes the roles of men and women in marriage. These verses, you know the phrase when you step on someone's air hose? Do you know that phrase? These verses step on our culture's air hose. You start talking about this and our culture's going, <laughs> they don't know how to react to it. Understand, you say, Chris, why are you making a big deal about it? Wives who call their husbands Lord? Woo -hoo -hoo. 
Husbands who live with their weaker vessel wives in an understanding way, that is suffocating to our culture. Suffocating. And yet it is this passage that points to our church's two greatest needs and every church's greatest needs, and that is this. Unapologetic exposition of the role of marriage and and the role of men and women, that would be one. And number two, leaders who model marriage. That is desperately needed today in the church of Jesus Christ. Desperately needed. Young men are frustrated by submission to leaders who tell them, do as I say, not as I do in their marriages. Our churches are in desperate need to hear God's design for marriage boldly taught and to see God's design courageously modeled. Courageously modeled. I want to warn you, this is the only reason I'm saying this, I want to warn you, you may not want to be my friend and you may not want to claim me as a pastor teacher of this church in just a couple months. I did not ask for this, it was asked of me, uh, but I wrote two books. I did a series back in 1980s called Let the Men Be Men and Let the Women Be Women. I had a publisher come and say, I want you to write those books. I want you to describe for high school and for college and for young marrieds the role of a man and the role of a woman, and I want you to lay it all out just the way you did back then. Well, we did that. They're about two months from being published, and now you're going to all be embarrassed by me (laughs) because I'm telling you, it's right out of the text. I didn't make it up. I'm just teaching the Bible, but man, it is foreign to our world. And it is a desperate need. Would you say yes to that? It is desperate. And that's just what happens. So I'm going to ask you in later months, when we start talking about the role of women, I want you women to go, yay! Because people who come to our church are going to go, hey, they're excited about this. Instead of some foreign guy down here teaching on this stuff that's weird to our culture. We need to be bold about our commitment to two. There's two sexes. Only two only two, male and Yahoo. Yahoo. That's what the Bible teaches. I didn't make that up. I didn't make it up. It's right here. If you're offended by that, just read your Bible and let him offend you because it's there. And understand, we need to be bold. We need to be not shying away, but bold in our proclamation that men are uniquely gifted, men are uniquely called, and women are uniquely gifted, women are uniquely called. We as a church want men to minister to men and women to minister to women, and we are bold about that, and we are not going to stop being bold about it. So understand it's coming. And finally, young men will find submission easier when, number five, leaders follow the truth of God's word alone. Follow the truth of God's word alone. It says in number five here, basically in chapters one and two, now working all the way back to chapters one and two, Peter quickly affirms it is God's word alone that saves and God's word alone that sanctifies. He says it in 1 Peter chapter one, verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. It is God's word that causes you to be born again. Not anybody's words, it is God's word. And 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure miracle of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. So your salvation and your sanctification is based on God's word and we need to be people who are sold out, all in, willing to die for principle, not preference. For truth, not tradition. For doctrine, not deception. We're going to have to be people going, nope, that's what the Bible says, that's where I'm camping, because we're living in a world of deception, amen? 
we've got to be people of truth. And the point in this letter is Peter already told the leaders how to make submission of young men easier, and young men can submit when they're saying, look, this is not my opinion. This is not our preference. In multiple ways, just in Germany, just this last week, we told guys, this is the principle, this is the principle, this is the principle, die for this. Now there's about 15 ways you can apply this in your culture, etc., but the principle never changes, right? And that's the same thing, you raise your kids that way. You go, mommy and daddy are under this principle. Mommy and daddy have to submit to this principle. If mommy and daddy aren't doing this, we're wrong. We're wrong before God. But there's a bunch of preferences that we may choose in our household. We're going to let you know their preferences. We're going to remind you of them. You know, you go to bed at 8.30. I don't want to go to bed at 8.30. Yeah, but mommy and daddy have this preference. We like you to wake up and not be Beelzebub. And so we're going to make you go to bed. We're going to go through this process. You know, this is what we do. But that's not principle. That's preference. So we always made sure that you make a distinction between principle and preference. We all live by that. And when they come to you, listen, when your kids come to you and you go, Mommy and Daddy, you're not living by the truth of God's Word, you better repent. You better let them know that you're under the authority of the Word of God. And you say, well, they said it with a wrong attitude. Yeah, but you still need to repent. And then you need to say, kids, say it nicer next time, okay? <laughs> I get it. I get it. But understand, you could add making disciples to this. You could be training men. But understand, we're trying to say the next generation is going to get the keys to the car. Do you hear what I'm saying? Uh, I just discovered, I didn't know this, I'm the oldest elder at our church. I'm an old guy. I'm going to croak soon. I'm going to heaven. Bye. Okay? I'm good with that. But understand, our elders are going to also die eventually. And if the Lord gives us grace and this church continues, it's the next generation, and they're in this room right now, the next generation of leaders who are going to carry this church. And we want them to be not as good as we were. We want them to be better than what we were. And we're going to pour our hearts and lives and souls into the next generation of this church so this church will continue for the glory of God. You understand that? But that's what Peter's talking about. When he says submit to your elders, he's not talking about that in a vacuum. He's talking about it in the basis of the Great Commission, about training men, and all of that is presumed in this particular context. But under a persecuted environment, we've got to do that. Church leaders either make it easy or hard for young men to submit. And I can hear you right now. You're going, man, Peter, tell those leaders what to do. Just wait till you hear what he says to you. Are you ready? Last point. Here we go. We're running out of time. Let number three, every member exhibits humility by serving. Every member exhibits humility by serving. Elders do it by shepherding. Young men do it by submitting. But everyone exhibits humility through service. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? Remember what he's talking about here. He says, I command you to wear humility like a garment. Now, I don't know how I'm dressed today. We call this business casual, snappy casual, whatever you want. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe you do. I don't care. All right. No matter what I'm dressed in, a suit or these outfits right now, I have a favorite outfit that I'm wearing in my heart, which is cargo shorts and a Tommy Bahama shirt. I, can, I would sleep in them if Gene would let me, Okay. <laughs> Understand, I have a favorite outfit. Listen, Peter's telling you right now, your favorite outfit is humility. That's the one you're supposed to wear. That's it. You say, well, how does that show itself? I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you asked. That's our favorite. Like clothes you wear, all of you, the entire congregation, clothe yourselves with humility. How? The verb clothe there is a command in the middle voice, which means you act upon yourself. This is not happening to you. You choose to do this. 
That's why it's not embarrassment and humility. It's an action you choose to do. You act upon yourself. You depend on the indwelling Holy Spirit. You act upon your will in obedience to live humbly. And the verb clothe literally means, and this is the literal rendering of the verb, to tie something on oneself. To tie something on, such as the work apron worn by a servant. Now this is a powerful picture that Peter's telling you, so don't lose me here. Understand what he's saying in the first century, a slave would tie on a scarf, they'd tie on some overalls, or they would tie on some other element of, of a, an outfit that usually was a white outfit to distinguish himself or herself as a from a free man or a free woman. They're a slave, and they're wearing the clothing of a slave, and they wore that clothing that made them distinct. And then add to it, again, you're talking to Peter here, so what's vivid in Peter's mind, right? He's thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking about him taking on that white towel and walking from disciple to disciple and washing their what? That's exactly what he's thinking here. He's giving that imagery that you would all know in the first century, if you read it in the Greek language, you would go, oh, he's talking about Jesus here. He's thinking about our Lord who washed the disciples' feet, and that's what he means by clothing yourselves with humility. Humility is to treat one another the way Jesus did when he wrapped himself in a towel and washed their feet. That is now your favorite outfit. Listen, the only way we're going to survive the next wave of persecution and when it begins to get intense as a nation is that we've got to wrap ourselves in a towel of humility and serve each other like no end. That's the only way. That's his solution. That's not my solution. That's Peter's solution to persecution. Elder Shepherd, young men submit, and all of you clothe yourselves in service toward one another. Understand, Peter is telling the church back then and the church today to survive difficult times, we need to serve each other that way. And listen, you know this. If Jesus Christ, God of the universe, our Savior, who died on our behalf, God incarnate, if he would leave the perfection of heaven and live on a fallow, sinful, gross earth among sinful people, then serve us like a slave in the lowliest manner, be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If the Lord of all glory would do that, who made the stars, then we, can we not wrap ourselves in the towel of a slave as if we had no rights at all and minister to others, even serving those who don't appreciate us, those who ignore us, and those who are rude to us. Are you with me on that? That's what he's talking about. And when you're being persecuted, what's the goal of persecution? To divide us. But when you serve each other like slaves, it binds us together, does it not? It does. The sturdy church is made up of members who are willing to sacrificially serve each other, take on the lowliest duty, die to self, and consider others more important than ourselves. Than ourselves. Why? Because humility is how God makes every church and our church healthy enough to survive any test, any persecution, and any kind of attack. Again, one more time. Chris, what's coming? I don't know, but it's coming. The humble are not going to be silent. They're going to be shepherding. They're going to be submitting. And they're going to be serving others like a slave does his master. Are you tracking? Is it important? Take a look at how he ends verse 5. He says, For God is opposed to the proud and gives what? Grace to the humble. It's two facts. Those are indicatives. He's saying God factually is against the self-sufficient and the self-reliant. He's against them. Fact number two, he gives grace, abundant grace to the God-dependent. God hates your pride especially the pride found in leaders. 
He hates it. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. What evil? He says, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Why does God hate pride? When you, as a sinful human being, elevate yourself to the position of God, like Satan did, refuse to acknowledge your dependence upon the Lord and lift your heart against him and contend for supremacy, God hates that. Now, what do you hate? I took a step back and said, what does Chris Mueller hate? These are petty, all right? Number one, I hate drivers who don't use their turn signal. I just, you know, and if you husband and wives are arguing about that, I hope the turn signal user wins, okay? I hate guys that wear Speedo bathing suits, okay? It's just, just go to Europe, you know, go to France, fine, just don't do that here. I hate my sin. I hate it. I hate it. God hates pride. He hates it. John Calvin said, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature even in the smallest degree. And that word when he says is opposed to the proud, that word opposed actually means hostile. You know, you're his beloved. You're his child. But when you start acting arrogantly, you become his enemy. Even as his child, he's looking at you with a level of hostility. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that you're kicked out of the family. It just means that you're working, he's working against you at that point. The arrogant. The opposition to your arrogant heart is a fact. It's a fact. Pride is your most dangerous enemy. If it is the sin you must be most alert to and most afraid of, why? Because pride is the sin most difficult to identify in ourselves and God opposes you when you're proud. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, called pride, quote, the most difficult sin to root out in your life. Pride will undermine you, destroy you, ruin you, lead to more sin and push you to compromise and keep yourself enslaved to lust. End quote, pride will ruin your walk with God and pride will ruin our church. No matter what opportunities he gives us. Peter is warning Christians and churches, God is opposed to churches where elders don't shepherd, where young men don't submit, and where church members don't clothe themselves with humble service. And whatever the enemy throws at it next, I don't know if it's, you know, we got the Delta thing, and then maybe we'll get through all the Greek alphabet, we'll get to Zeta, you know? <laughs> whatever the distressing trials, whatever the persecutions are coming, and they are coming, it will be the humble church that not only survives, but thrives to the glory of God. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time where we could look at these truths. We pray, Father, that you would use your word in a mighty way in our lives, cause us to really reflect on our hearts before you, and cause us to realize what it's going to take for us to stand strong and to be a true witness of your glory when things get really hot. And we pray, Father, that you would be pleased with how we respond to you in worship. And if there's any here who are still arrogantly opposed to even your salvation, would you crack through that heart and draw them to yourself and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. 
Thanks, and have a great day.